Dateline, 2nd of March, 2015, and we survived Avalon again. Well, g'day folks, and welcome to the Australia Desk for episode 339. And Grant, the, really the question is, did Avalon survive us? Yeah, um, I think it did. I yes. think it did, yes. I, mean, I think there's Stephen Grant proof that place now after our third tour of there. What do, what do you think? They do seem to. They've done a pretty good job of it. Well, Avalon, the Australian International Air Show. Uh, we only have one uh, every second year, so uh, the team went down there again and we had a, a pretty big week there. Probably not as big as we normally have because we were a little bit constrained with resources this year, but notwithstanding that, we still had a fantastic time. I guess with the air show, it's a lot of uh, more of the same, really. I mean, Avalon, much like Farnborough and a lot of the other big international National Air Shows, it's essentially a trade show about heavy metal. Um, not a lot of GA there, unfortunately, which I always think it's unfortunately. Grant, what do you reckon? Oh, uh, look, I don't think it's it's going to work just purely for GA. It would take a lot of changes at the high levels of that show to make them more GA friendly. They, they really are set on being a little Australian um, Farnborough or um, Singapore Air Show or things like that. They, they are trade shows. They're primarily all about the trade and everything else is tacked on. Until you have camping alongside your aircraft at the airport, it's not going to be an Oshkosh by any stretch of the imagination. I'm totally up for camping under the wing of an aircraft, Grant, particularly if it was the, uh, the A400 M, which made its debut at the air show, and I believe its debut in Australia, a, a very, very, very impressive looking machine, almost as nice as the Herc, maybe even nicer. Oh, big oh. call there! Oh, mate, it's getting under your skin. That's pretty impressive. It certainly had better restrooms in it. That much is certain. Airliner toilets, yay! Well, you can hear all of our coverage of uh, the Australian International Air Show for 2015 over at our website, PlaneCrazyDownUnder.com, and uh, the latest episode, number 123, uh, is an hour and a half of uh, interviews there of some of the personnel. We had a really good time, and I reckon, Grant, we've got enough content to make probably two more podcasts out of it. But uh, speaking of uh, Royal Australian Air Force uh, personnel, we had a talk to Flying Officer Guns, and we'll leave it that way for uh, OPSEC reasons. And uh, he was uh, telling us about some wonderful experiences he's had recently with the uh, C-130s over there at Red Flag near Las Vegas. Yep, and we started off by talking about the weather. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was actually surprisingly hot for early uh, time of year over there, uh, and uh, quite intense, which uh, kind of made it even hotter for us. <laughs> Outside of the weather. Even in the aircon, it was running pretty hot. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So uh, you've got a command rating on the C-130J? Yes. Straight out of flight school into the Js? Yes. Okay, so the usual thing, CT4, PC9, and yep. then over to the, uh, what did you fly next, the um, King Air? No, no, you go uh, from the CT4 to the PC9, and I went straight to the Js. Wow. So, yeah, Suddenly there's a whole lot change. more throttles. There's a lot more asymmetrics, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> and a nicer toilet. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, the no, it's a yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is always that. Yeah. So, um, okay, how long have you been flying on command on the... Uh, I'm a command, I've only had command for about four months now, but I've been on the J for over two years. How many hours, roughly? Uh, 1,300. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, how'd you get selected to go to Red Flag? Uh, I'd uh, previously been working in the electronic warfare uh, area and uh, special operations within uh, the C-130J capability. Uh, and then I got my command and a, a spot opened up for uh, to go over as a tactician, so uh, planning and organising the missions. And I put my hand up to go and do that, uh, to be part of the exercise, to get that experience. Cool. So yeah, you were you were in tactical, so you were putting everything together. Yeah. Uh, you were one of the boffins in the back room who made sure that uh, the mission worked, yeah? Yeah, I had the fun job with no sun. Uh, yeah, so we're in the, the back room, you'd have a planning day the day before each uh, vol cycle or, or flown cycle um, and uh, that would last 12 to 14 hours where you'd be integrating with all the players that would be operating the next day and coming up with a plan as to how we're going to fly it into you know what sort of environment that we are whether it's a you know a, a all-up war or there's a whole bunch of different uh, things we operate in that. Okay. 
So speaking of flying, everybody who uh, would be vaguely familiar with Red Flag would instantly think fighter jets. So obviously, you know, flying a C-130 is obviously a completely different role. Can you describe from, a, from an airlifter point of view what, what Red Flag means? Well, Red Flag for us is learning how to integrate within a large force element uh, and an exercise where we work with fighters, um, AWACS, tankers, um, ISR assets, troops on the ground. Um, and it's really for us to get involved in that sphere and get and be a part of it and be able to operate with them in, in their environment, which is a great benefit for us when we're trying to push forward with the capability of the C-130J where we're uh, doing more uh, work with uh, the special men and women of the uh, Australian and American Defence Forces. So in doing that, it's actually a huge benefit for us to be over there working with them and integrating with their systems. And I think it helps them a lot as well, seeing how we work. Uh, so yeah, it's been good. That's an interesting aspect. Do you find much difference between the way, say, the USAP operates in that environment to the way the, the, the RAF operates? Well, uh, to be honest, I haven't done a lot of large force element group exercises with the RAF. Anytime you do that, we tend to end up using the USAF or the Marines or whoever. whoever. Uh, they kind of run the show there. So I, I couldn't really give you a good answer on whether or not it's different because most of the work that we do with the RAF, uh, say in the, uh, the MER, I think it's called now, is done in a small group anyway because we're you know moving uh, things from A to B as opposed to participating in, in an all-up war, which is what you do when you go to a red flag. Now you mentioned about the planning. Uh, so you spend a day beforehand, uh, the day before you spend a lot of time putting that plan together. How do, how do the plans come down? Is it like, yo, guys, take this, you know, get this from here to here? Or what's, what's the kind of parameters that you get and then how do you work it through to actually rubber on the on the tarmac in a way. Okay, well, generally there's a mission outcome that's been pre-decided that the guy's going to want to try and achieve and they'll they'll give a, a sort of a group of people there to be a commander and they'll they'll run what they plan as the mission for the next day. Like anyone going out, if you want to do a NAVX or something around Australia, you're planning it, except they're planning it for 70 aircraft and they're working out from their perspective how they're going to integrate you within the outcomes that which they've been directed to achieve by their high command. So the whole... Uh, planning process is, is them deciding where they're going to use which asset, at which point, uh, where airlift's going to come in, where the uh, seed's going to work, where strike's going to get involved, and um, they bring that all together and try and pull in a solid plan uh, and get approval for that for the night before so they can brief it the next day and then step and launch uh, for the, the vol the next day. So there's a lot of um, integrating with multiple force assets from multiple forces. Uh, how have you found that integration working? Is uh, is everyone talking the same language? Or uh... yeah, yeah. Look, uh, we are, and because we're getting more and more involved in these American exercises, um, like Cope North, like um, the Flag Alaska and Flag Nellis, uh, we do really talk the same sort of language. So you, it, the integration really is starting to develop quite strongly. Um, so I, I think it works reasonably seamlessly, and you get to learn the different uh, what the different pilots in different frames, how their personalities go, and what they actually are looking to and trying to achieve every day because it can be quite different <laughs> when you're talking about planning obviously there's a plan but obviously uh, particularly in that sort of environment I guess nothing goes to plan so how much contingency is built into your planning well yes there, there is plan A B and then every other plan that you conceivably <laughs> think of uh, it is uh, as, as you correctly suggested there it's a very dynamic environment once you uh, once you launch for the day so um, yeah, it becomes quite interesting there is obviously they have AWACS uh, like we have here on demonstration operating up there at the time so they're still running the air war so when things are going uh, left right of centre um, they've got um, guys up there that are running the show and the, the mission commander from the day before is also still heavily involved in alright okay this isn't working let's try this or this isn't working let's try this 
Um, and then you've got all the other things with uh, all the comms and all that stuff which is going on, which is really quite interesting. Yeah. I, I believe it was von Klauschwitz who said, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Yeah, that's true, even if the enemy isn't shooting back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's just dots on the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, okay, now you uh, just threw reference there to uh, Flag Alaska. Yeah. Uh, Elmendorf, the, uh, the rather different, completely different environment to Nellis. Nellis being hot and desert, Elmendorf being typically cold and frigid. Um, how, how was it when you uh, worked out at Elmendorf? Uh, Elmendorf was a really great experience, actually. Um, the thing that we don't get in Australia uh, that the Americans do have, and it's the same, I guess, in Nellis, but is the terrain up there. And the terrain up in Alaska is quite high, very remote, and it is one of the biggest... Um, biggest sort of air exercises in the world in terms of space. So Nellis is quite constricted, whereas Elmendorf has got a heap of space. Uh, and we have more airlift players up there. So we still had the same integration with the, with the fighters, and we still had pretty much the same number of aircraft, but we had more uh, airlift assets. So it actually became interesting that trying to work with other nations, because we had the Japanese and the USAF there as well, and operate with them. And uh, we got to operators have our assets a few times there, which was really, really good, uh, where we would be, the whole mission would be based around us. And it was quite interesting, as I was saying before, we, uh, we got to drop 240 paratroopers in formation on a, on a drop zone there, which was uh, well, pretty impressive. I wish I was on the ground, actually, to watch it. <laughs> yeah. What do we mean? Parachutes and guys going everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so now we spoke to X before and uh, he was telling us about uh, the, the lessons learned from the Loadmaster perspective and uh, a big one for him was uh, just the chatter on the radio. Uh, that, you know, pilots grow up with that, Loadmasters are something new. What were the lessons you, you brought back from both um, Alaska and uh, Nellis? Well, the major lessons that we bring back are planning and integration. Our, uh, our TTPs for how we operate, I think, are, are becoming uh, rather rather good for our low-level and uh, our nighttime work and our, and our formation work. Um, we've still got a lot of areas to develop, but the major things we're getting out of the flag is the integration and the large uh, force exercises um, that we do over there. So being able to integrate with the USAF, with the Marines, with the Army, with the uh, JASDAF, all those types, and, and do it as a big group and be able to operate, as the Loadmasters were saying, with all those radios going at the same time. So we've got six radios running at the same time that we've got to monitor and uh, only two guys up the front. Um, so that's where the Loadmasters now become quite a, a valuable asset in that they can listen to the radios too and give us feedback because no matter how good we think we are, we can't listen to six radios at once and be effective. So yeah, the major thing I get out of that is us integrating and really becoming a part of those bigger groups and in doing that, getting more awareness from the command perspective of both the Australian and the US military of how the Hercules can actually operate, particularly the J, how effectively we can operate. And it's a very effective aircraft uh, when used in the ways that it's designed for. Well, there you go, Grant. And uh, I guess uh, as the saying goes, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Oh, yeah, unless um, it hitches a ride on your person. But we won't go there. No, we won't go there indeed. Well, I guess, Grant, uh, after all that air showing and stuff, after a week at Avalon, I think we need a rest. I think we should sign off until next week. I think you're right, mate. I'm Grant McCarran. And I'm Steve Fisher. Cheers, folks. There you go. That'll confuse him. We did it around the other way. Crap, I'm confused myself. I know. Who am I? <laughs> it must be Monday.